Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. If you want to understand someone, you need only examine their motivations. What does a person want? Why do the crowds in Mark approach Jesus? Most often they approach because they want to save their own neck. They want something for themselves. Rarely do they approach to gather supplies in order to help others. In Mark, the example of the father of the demon-possessed mute presents an interesting exception to this pattern. Yes, he asks Jesus to help his son, but the way in which he asks hints at the possibility of faith. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, namely, Lord, I trust you, give me something to trust, give me your teaching. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. This week's episode is in loving memory of Mohsen Yaqub. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 174 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are in chapter 9 of Mark, verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. The crowds, which are the one problem because of their obsession with amazing things and miracles, and then the scribes who argue about signs and wonders. Now, although their amazement is founded in an incorrect motivation, the fact remains that the crowds themselves are evidence of the work that's needed to be done. So I want to recontextualize verse 14 and what came before. Peter wanted to stay on the mountain, but Jesus knew he had to keep moving. And lo and behold, as soon as they come down the mountain, guess what happens, Richard? There's work to do. Immediately, there's that word again, our favorite word, ephthys. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Again, it's amazement at what they see, not amazement at what they hear. Nevertheless, they're there, and Jesus is there to minister to them. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit, which makes him mute. Isn't that interesting, Richard, this ailment? To be mute means you don't have the ability to speak. And this poor person is taking their son to the disciples of Jesus, who are allegedly teachers, disciples of the master, who brings the one teaching that heals all ailments, and they are unable to teach this person how to speak. That is an important metaphor. The whole crowd is excited 
about what's going to happen. You know, what are you guys discussing among yourselves? Maybe there's going to be a miracle. Maybe there's going to be something great. But yes, they don't understand what it means to be mute. To be mute means you can't speak. It means you're without a word. And Jesus is there to give a word, not to give a healing, but to give a word. And that's what people don't understand. If you have tingling in your fingers and Jesus makes it so that you can feel your fingers again, this does no good unless your hand is being used to sow the seed. It's only in the function of how it serves the seed, how it serves the teaching, how it serves the word, that it has any meaning whatsoever. And of course, the one who doesn't know what to say because they haven't heard scripture, remember you have to hear scripture and repeat it, but not just hear it and repeat it, you have to also hear it and do it. And when you don't hear it and you can't do it, you become the slave of whatever is left over whatever was there before and so in the following verse and whenever it seizes him it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out i told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it so you have further evidence that the disciples are not fulfilling their duty they are not answering the call to teach so not only can this poor person not speak but their life is in ruins. They have no control over their actions because they are enslaved to a false teaching. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. This is a beautiful phrase. The unbelieving generation in the story is the generation to which Jesus is speaking. But it's also a literary device. It is the generation that hears this gospel proclaimed because every generation is the same. Every generation is unbelieving. And that's why this idea of progress is so destructive for human civilization because if you believe the lie of progress, if you imagine that you're better than what came before you, then you become more self-righteous, less wise, and more destructive. And this is the progress of all civilizations. It's happening right now in the United States we are seeing the first fruits of our destruction and people don't even understand or can't come to terms with the spiraling down of this culture. I like that you use the word culture, Father, because I think that Mark uses this word generation on purpose. He's not saying, oh, unbelieving disciples, oh, unbelieving man, oh, unbelieving son, oh, unbelieving crowds. He says, oh, unbelieving generation, which means every single person. The reader wants to come and find a way to wiggle out of the accusation. Oh, it's not about me. I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus. Oh, Jesus must not be talking about me. Well, how can he not be talking about you if he says, oh, unbelieving generation? Was this a generation that was unique to the time of Jesus? And ever since then, the generations have been believing? I doubt that, which means that every generation that came after is an unbelieving generation. So the fact that it accuses the entire generation, none of us is off the hook. People want to be buddies with Jesus, and he is not speaking to a generation of buddies. He's annoyed. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Let me just take care of this because you guys don't trust. I mean, again, oh, untrusting generation, not oh, unbelieving. Oh, generation without trust. O oh, generation who does not trust God. O oh, generation who does not trust the power of the word to correct our wicked ways. The reader is of the generation 
whatever generation he's from, who does not trust in the word. They want to come for a miracle. The man wants to go to Jesus because it's the man Jesus who can heal him because the disciples can't. No, it's whether you have the word or don't have the word. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling on the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So here, this person is so desperate, this father. We now know it's the father of the child, not the mother. This person is so desperate that they're willing to try anything. They've had this problem from childhood. Notice Jesus in the next verse is not going to say, you have great faith. He's going to take the opportunity of this man's helplessness to emphasize the point that you were just making, Richard, which is the question of trust. If you trust the teaching of the Bible, if you trust the words of the Pentateuch that I have been repeatedly sharing with you, if you trust the Torah, if you trust the prophets, then this ailment of your son's lack of self-control and his self-abuse from childhood can be corrected by the commandment of God. Now, on the one hand, the father is incorrect because he wants Jesus to do something. He doesn't understand that it's the word. But as we said at the very beginning, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, it's not about the healing per se, it's about the opportunity to plant the seed in front of everybody so everyone sees the seed being planted and so that the seed can be planted as broadly as possible. And I really want our listeners to pay close attention. The man's predicament amplifies the opportunity. His helplessness amplifies the opportunity. It's not that because he's helpless, he's right, the way we elevate victims in progressive culture. No. You can be someone who is helpless and still be a monster. There are plenty of poor people who, because they dream of being rich, are as bad as the most abusive wealthy person. You can't fall into the trap of ontology and making categories and deciding what type of person someone is. We can't assume that Jesus doesn't include this man when he talks about how annoyed he is. But the point is that because the man is helpless, it's an opportunity. Because only when you are helpless can you be made to understand the value of trust. Only when you are drowning in the water, only when there's no hope, do you understand the value of the life preserver. Sojourn in the wilderness is so important. It's the place where there is nothing to sustain you except manna from heavens and water from the stone. God keeps putting people into situations where they have no choice but to trust. In Hosea 3, when the people are unbelieving, he takes them out into the wilderness to seduce them where there's no one else to provide for the people. This image is overwhelming as one reads scripture. If you take the example of the three youths, as Dr. King does in his famous sermon, but if not, or you take the example of Habakkuk and many other examples from Scripture, the question of trust gets pushed to the envelope. Will you trust in the instruction even if God does not save you? 
Will you trust in the instruction when everything fails? That's the tension with the miracles in Mark. Do you want to be like Jacob and trust because God gave you something? Which is how William Reed understands the Gospel of Mark, which is silly. I'll believe if he rises from the dead. That's the faith of Jacob. That's the faith of the scribes and the Pharisees. Or do you want to trust up front with commitment, no matter what the outcome, because you are committed to the cause of what Jesus is presenting you? That's the question. So Jesus is frustrated. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. In other words, to him who places their trust in the teaching. It's only about Jesus insofar as Jesus trusts. If the disciples only trusted, the disciples could have taken care of this. This is why Jesus is annoyed. I'm trying to sow the seed. I'm trying to sow the seed of trust, a word that they can trust, a word that brings the fruit of trust. And I don't see any fruit. Jesus is impatient. Thank you for mentioning the ephthes we saw earlier. Jesus is impatient to sow. Recently, I heard there was a government official and someone said, if that's going to happen, it's going to take 10 years for that ever to actually come to pass. And he said, then why are we wasting time? We need to get started as quickly as possible. It's going to take 10 years. This is Jesus. Jesus is impatient to sow the seed. He doesn't have time to waste. Habakkuk is a sign of Jesus in the prophetic tradition in this sense, that he trusted and he sojourned without the victory but with hope and that's what Jesus is doing here and that's what he's asking of the crowds that's what he's asking of the disciples if you're still asking if you can of me then when it gets ugly this adulterous and sinful generation is going to betray me you're going to show zero integrity and you're going to sell me out to save your own skin because you don't want trust. You're not committed to trust. You're committed to saving your own neck. And that is the difficulty here. Jesus has already said multiple times that he's going to die and he's going to suffer. So he's forcing the disciples to think about the end game here for those who believe. And when Jesus is raised, and this is essential in Mark, it's in the language of Mark when they run to the tomb. What you are left with is what Jesus has been saying all along. So when Dr. Benton says the problem is that Jesus is going to die and the listener says, yes, but he's raised, then Father Mark adds, and when he's raised, he's going to tell you the same thing he's telling you now. The situation for you doesn't change. It's just that in the resurrection, he's going to say it to you for all time until you face the judgment to demonstrate whether or not you trusted as he did when he lost everything. Because people assume that the resurrection means everything's going to be okay. No, the resurrection means that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. He knew you before you were born, and he will be there to greet you when you die, to hold you accountable. Accountable to what? Accountable to what he's been saying all throughout Mark. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. He trusts, but he doesn't trust. He trusts, but he needs the word that Jesus has in order to counteract his lack of trust. He 
doesn't believe, but he wants to believe. There's potential here that Jesus can sow the seed and actually have some fruit. And the way that Jesus is going to help his lack of trust is by filling it with the teaching. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. This is an obvious reference to baptism. The man said, I don't trust. Give me something to trust. Jesus gave him the Pentateuch. He filled the vacuum with the word of God. And this word of God is a commandment. It's a commandment that corrects false teaching to protect its addressees. And this commandment excised the demon. And now the boy is lying there like a corpse because he was baptized. He was circumcised. He had the foreskin of his heart circumcised, as we hear in the prophets, with the proclamation of the word. In case the listener thinks that Father Mark and I were pushing things when we were saying the mute spirit is simply one who can't speak a word. You know, they want to talk about this as a clinical condition, as being mute, as just unable to speak in a physical way. Then why is it that Jesus says deaf and mute spirit? The father never said it was deaf. Jesus just added that he is deaf. Why would he add that it's deaf? Muteness and deafness come together. They're inextricable. When Jesus says, you deaf and mute spirit, the reason why it's mute is because it can't hear the word. And this has been the problem of the entire generation. The entire generation is haunted by some manifestation of this demon and that they cannot speak the word because they can't hear the word. If you believe that in order to preach, you shouldn't just hear and repeat, but there's something else, you at best are a neo-pagan, at best. At worst, you make yourself a god, with all due respect. What Jesus is saying in this very important observation you made about the insertion of deafness, Richard, What he's telling you is that I don't need you to tell me you're deaf. I know you're deaf based on the fruit of what I see. So your ears might even be working, but if garbage comes out of your mouth, there's something wrong with your ears. Because a biblical teacher is an automaton. You have to hear and repeat. It is a commandment. It is an instruction that is not glamorous, that is not exciting. But that is what it is. Again, if the Lord Jesus Christ hears and repeats, who among us is more worthy than Jesus Christ to formulate their own opinion independent of what we hear and are commanded to repeat? So this accusation or this ailment of deafness is a very, very serious matter and a judgment especially against those who would claim to preach. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? He was dead, and Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. 
it was Jesus that gave him life, not because of the beautiful touch of his gorgeous hands, but because he received the word. He's preaching to them. He's teaching them how to trust in the word, and this is what gives life. So much of the Gospels and the Bible in its entirety were fighting against empire. There's always an empire in the background everywhere in the Bible. And the empire is always able to show its strength through killing, through death, through captivity, through forced labor. It uses force and strength to wield the power of death. Only God can give life. That is the difference between God and Caesar. And Jesus shows what side he's on by giving life. He shows that he doesn't just give life as a Superman, as a miracle worker, as a wonder worker, but as one who brings a word that can even give life after Jesus himself is gone from this earth. The word still abides. And notice the lack of understanding of the disciples in verse 28 is linked to the house. They brought him into the house and they asked him privately. They were on the mountain, which is the place where they wanted to build a shrine. Jesus moved them down from the mountain out away from the temple, away from the shrine, in the wilderness, as you were saying, the metaphoric wilderness. And now they're pulling him back into a house and they're asking him privately in the house, why couldn't we do it? We're Jews, we're your disciples, we're insiders, we're clergy, we're special, we're holy, you chose us, why couldn't we cast it out? And the answer of Jesus is very interesting. And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Why would Jesus say that? Why would he say that when the place for prayer is the place they left behind? They were going to build a shrine. Jesus, we could pray at the shrine. Now we're in the house. We can pray in this house. It's a metaphor for a place of worship, the city, the temple, the structure. No, Jesus is saying it can only be cast out by prayer in the wilderness. Meaning that you bring the heavenly Jerusalem in Ezekiel with you wherever you go so long as you have the words of the Pentateuch on your lips. You ask the disciple, what do you do with the person who has a withered hand or who can't speak or has some ailment? They'll say, take him to the temple and make a sacrifice. And if he can't get to Jerusalem, let's drag them up the mountain here to the shrine. But Jesus doesn't need to. Wherever he is, he preaches a word, he says a prayer, and there the reality of the heavenly Jerusalem, the reality of the kingdom is present. The disciples are so obsessed with self-sufficiency. And this is something that afflicts all of humanity. The disciples are simply an example of all of humanity. They want to be able to control life. They want to control what gives them life. They want to have a handle on things. That is what is antithetical to trust because they want to trust themselves rather than trust the one who provides for them. It's such an important point that he brought them into a house to speak privately. What has Jesus been doing the entire time up till now? leaving houses to speak publicly. That's the point, exactly. They want a special word just for them. Right. And they have to do it in an enclosure. This already shows they do not have the faith that they need to have. And then when he says this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer, it goes along with exactly what you're saying, Father. In the wilderness, when one has no hope except in God, because there is no way to provide for yourself in the desert, you have to depend on God. And so 
The only way is through supplication because oftentimes people read this, so we'll pray three times a day and then we can start casting out demons. No, it's not about a checklist. It's about prayer as in supplication, as in saying like the man did here, like the father did here, I believe help my unbelief. This is the only way that we can begin on the path to actually having some actual trust is through this prayer. I trust. Give me something to trust. Help me preach a word. This prayer of the man is a supplication to be fed the teaching. Give us a word, Jesus. It's trusting that Jesus's word can heal. Give us a word. Thank you very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.